Today's big question, when does life begin? All right, let's begin with the obvious. I am a big fan of women's rights, and as I am a woman, I enjoy making my own health care decisions. In general, you'll find that I like the government out of my business as much as possible. So many people may find it surprising to find out that I am very much pro-life. For my pro-choice friends listening, don't stop here. I prepared for this episode by trying to really delve into the pro-choice argument, listening to podcasts, watching videos, and reading articles that defend and explain the pro-choice stance. It is important to me that I do not unfairly characterize any of the arguments as my goal, as always on this show, is a nuanced discussion on the hard topics. Now, this is rightly an emotional topic for many of us, and I'm going to try, I'm, I'm not going to try to pretend that it's not. At the heart of all of this for me is not the discussion of women's autonomy or sexual freedom, but what is life? When does it begin? And what gives it value? But first, we want to give a big ol' something burger shout out to our awesome friends at Pharos Films. Woo! Pharos Films is a state of the art video production company serving Central Florida, specializing in professional promotional videos, real estate advertisement, drone photography, and music videos. My longtime friend and founder of Pharaoh's Films, Brandon Miles, shot our promotional pictures and they are fabulous. So don't wait. Reach out to Pharaoh's Films for all your video and photo production needs. You can visit them online at pharosfilms.com or give them a call at 321-795-5739. I don't care if you're Christian. In fact, I will fight for you to have your religious liberty and practice your Christianity. I believe in that. I don't believe in Christianity, which means that you do not get to dictate the way I live my life based on your religion. Technically, no. Up to 27 weeks, a fetus can't even feel pain. Also, that fetus is dependent on the mom's body, and therefore she has a right to her own body, and how she uses it is her choice. Well, the Bible says, I don't give a shit what the Bible says. There is separation of church and state, and to think that everyone is following your religion is extremely selfish. But the Bible, shut up. <laughs> but on a real note, that is what you would call a false equivalency. And I don't know a single person that's educated on the topic that would argue against cellular life being life. By definition, cells are very much a form of life. They just happen to be insentient. And just like it's not murder to pull the plug on somebody that's brain dead, it's not murder to get rid of a fetus that's insentient. So like I said, I'm okay if you want to pray to end abortion. But judging by the Trump sign that's also in your yard, you don't just want to pray to end it. You want to take away women's rights, and I'm not cool with that. Women deserve equal rights, whether they're pregnant or not. So today I've decided to end the abortion debate and I'm going to start off with agreeing with you pro-lifers. So yes, life begins at conception, a fetus is a living baby and it deserves all the rights everybody else has on the face of the planet and yet you still can't ban abortion and here's why. It's called bodily autonomy and bodily autonomy dictates that nobody can be forced to share or give up their body against their will even if it causes the death of another person. That means that bodily autonomy takes precedence 
over another person's right to live. So no, you can't be forced to give up a kidney or a liver or even your blood against your will, even if your decision causes somebody else to die. Same thing goes with women's bodies. They don't have to give up their body or their uterus or go through hours or even days of intense pain while they're literally being torn apart to let out a baby against their will. It's their body, their choice. All right, so before we delve into this huge topic, I want to introduce our producer, Cha-Cha. Hey. Cha, did you know that the word fetus is Latin for offspring, bringing forth, or hatching of young? Huh. Yeah, I always thought it was just a science word for a collection of cells, but it it actually, I thought it was maybe a dehumanizing word, but it's actually a very humanizing word in Latin. Wow. Just a fun fact. Offspring, your children. So... (laughs) Before we jump into this topic, I want to address what I'm calling the fringe, but I think it matters. So when I was preparing for this, I did find multiple unfortunate cases of people who committed acts of violence against abortion workers and abortion clinics, or there were individuals who spoke with what I'm calling to be unfiltered meanness to women who were going to abortion clinics. Up front, I think that is obviously bad. And clearly, anyone who's committing these acts of violence does not understand that pro-life is pro-life for everyone, and death never brings more life. So I saw this argument come up multiple times as a way to delegitimize the pro-life movement. But I think most people that I've interacted with, including myself and producer Cha, Mm -hmm. in the pro-life movement, we understand that violence is is not the answer to this, of course, and that the people that committed these acts or threatened to commit these acts did a grave disservice to the movement as a whole. Um, I'm not going to make excuses for what they did. I don't think it's right, but I will simply say I don't think that they represent me or almost anyone. Actually, they don't represent anyone I've ever met in the pro-life movement. Absolutely. So I just want to say that right off the jump. So in this episode, at the beginning of the episode, producer Cha and I are going to go through some of the common pro-choice arguments. And then later in the episode, we're going to bring on a special guest. So stay tuned. We'll tell you more about the special guests later. But first, like I said, preparing for this episode, I spent a lot of time in the pro-choice arguments. So that way I could articulate what I'm calling to be the opposition to my stance, because I made a very clear stance here that I'm pro-life. So I wanted to make sure I don't mischaracterize the pro-choice arguments. So I spent a lot of time reading, watching, learning as much as I could, talking to as many people as were willing to talk to me. So some of the common pro-choice arguments, we're going to start with one, which is health of the mother. There's an argument that abortion is necessary if it will, by carrying the baby to term, be fatal for the mother. Right. So I was curious how how common is this because it's brought up a lot in a lot of the videos and materials that I was looking at. So according to the Agency for Healthcare Administration, I found out that in Florida that every we record a reason for every abortion that occurs within our borders. So we live in Florida. Um, And in 2018... There were 70,083 abortions in Florida. So that's what we're working with, 70,083 abortions in Florida. Now, this table that I have in front of me is the reason. They had, I think, eight different options. But for the one that was abortion performed due to a life-endangering physical condition, 194 people said that that was what their situation was. Out of 70,000. Which we did some quick math (laughs) here. (laughs) Not quick, long math. And we found that was 0.27. Percent. Point two seven. Or point zero two. Point two seven. Yeah, point two seven. Okay, understood. Always check me and yeah. producer Charles Matt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I also wanted to 
bring into the health of the mother discussion that I, on social media, some of you might have saw that I asked people who are pro-life and pro-choice if they'd be willing to have conversations with me, shoot me their thoughts on this. A woman who's pro-life reached out to me and she told me the story of a friend of hers who was pregnant, the baby died, and that carrying the baby all the way to term would have been potentially fatal for the mother, but the baby had already died. So this is obviously not the common reason for abortion, but of course that's a unique circumstance where that woman did need it. It did become medically necessary for the woman because the baby was already dead. This doesn't represent the whole of the abortion argument, but those stories do matter. I don't mean to minimize the experiences of those people who experience those women who are experiencing this. Right. So that does happen. It's just a statistically a very small amount. So I don't think it accounts for much of the argument here when we're talking about the entire argument. Right. So another common pro-choice argument or point that is made is about rape. What if a woman is raped? Does she, is she going to be, and I'm using terminology that I heard like forced to carry this baby to term from somebody that raped her. Now rape is a tragedy. And again, we're never going to minimize that as a tragedy. It's an injustice that's been done to this woman. And I can't imagine the kind of pain and suffering that 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 brings about. Um, So then I thought, okay, what is the statistic on this? So in the exact same, the Agency for Healthcare Administration in Florida, when we looked at abortion performed due to rape, there was 101 total cases, which we said was 0.14% is because of rape right so these are a small percentage they are that doesn't um, make them any less tragic absolutely of course they're still tragic and again these stories still matter but it is when we're talking about the larger argument a very small percentage i also when i was speaking to the same woman who was pro-life when she was talking about this um, issue of rape in relationship to abortion she said that she is not an she said quote an eye for an eye kind of person so she was saying although something terrible might have been carried out on on a woman. She does not believe that gives her the right to carry out something terrible on another human, another being. human being. So this goes into the idea of is this or is this alive in the yeah. womb? And that's, right. that's where I mostly care about, right? That's where I spend almost all of my time. Um, so a common argument I was hearing when I was listening to pro-choice is that it's not alive. I heard terms like a clump of cells or even a parasite. So I started with those things. So I started with parasites. So I said, okay, is a baby in the womb a parasite? So then I, I spent far too much time, Producer yeah. Chan knows I know too much about parasites. It's, I'm not going to go through all of it here. But when you talk about the CDC, I was like, the CDC... And they talked about what is a parasite. They said a parasite is an organism that lives on or in a host organism and gets its food from or at the expense of the host. There's three different types of parasites that they can cause diseases in humans, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to have to skip at least six pages of research on parasites (laughs) because like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Anyway, so I know too much about parasites, but when I was thinking about a parasitic relationship, typically parasitic relationships don't happen within the same species. Like, it's usually a new species coming in and latching onto a different kind of species. Also, parasites are unnatural and they're not where they belong. So a parasite is not designed to be inside my stomach. Whereas as a woman, I know that the majority of my life, my body has been preparing for a baby, not for a parasite. Right. So the idea that it's and we're designed to carry. Right. I mean, babies. we know that for better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. known since I was 13. <laughs> That's Absolutely. what my body was doing. My hips were widening. The, the blood was flowing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I liked it or not, I knew I wasn't preparing for a parasite. 
my body knew that too. It would have prepared very differently. Right. So that's a key difference is that a parasite is somewhere it doesn't belong, whereas a baby is is not somewhere it does not belong. In fact, that's the only place a baby does belong before it is born, is in a womb. So the fact that we might feel like it's a parasitic relationship doesn't make it literally a parasite. So then I move on to the clump of cells. And then I thought, okay, yeah, a clump of cells, yes. I guess we are all... And when you say you move on to the clump of cells, you mean... The, in the, the argument the progression. Argument, yeah. yeah, so this is how I was taking this. I was going like point by point for this and deciding, okay, like what what are they trying to say here? What do I think about what they're saying? When I say they, I very, very generally am talking about advocates of pro-choice. Okay. So there was a multiple people that I was listening to saying, oh, well, a baby is just a clump of cells or a baby in the womb is a clump of cells. And I thought, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess we all are because we're always developing. And, and I guess at our, yeah. So yeah, I didn't even know. I was like, sure. But then we're all a clump of cells. Right. Which, okay. So again, I'm focused here on, is it a life? So I go to AmericanPregnancy.org. And I, I'm sure I've done this before because I want to be a mother one day and I'm really curious about the process and it really freaks me out. Like <laughs> I really relate to some of these women that are like, oh my gosh, like this baby is using me as a garden. Like <laughs> I'm freaking out. And um, yeah, I don't have the same romantic relationships that some of my peers have. They're like, oh, I can't wait to have a, like grow a baby. I want to have kids, but it freaks me out. Like it gives right. me a lot. Of, so I was spending some time looking at what happens week by week, right? So Week one, according to AmericanPregnancy.org, which is preparing women who are pregnant, what's going to happen? Like, what do you right. expect? What it to also, expect? And it tells expecting. you what vitamins to eat. I mean, and what to like, right. what to tell your friends to do for you. And like, this should be when you're relaxing. It's actually a super cute website. Oh, very cool. So if anyone is pregnant out there listening, AmericanPregnancy.org has really got you covered. <laughs> so in week one to week four, so they divide by month. So month one, they say the face and the eyes begin to develop and the heart begins to beat but your baby is this size of a grain of rice. Wow. <laughs> but it has a heartbeat. And wow. then month two, they say organs such as the brain, sensory organs, and your digestive tract begin to take shape and you start to have bones. So like the loose embryo starts to become a bone. Wow. Week three, the limbs as well as the hands, feet, fingers, and toes become really developed and there's fingernails, which producer child loved the... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so if there's fingernails, like, oh my yeah, gosh. Like, there's fingernails. I mean, geez. And this said by the end of the third month, your baby is fully formed. So I guess it just continues to grow from there, like get bigger and bigger. Um, month four, you have eyelids, eyelashes, and hair. Wow. Um, and then your baby now in month four can stretch, suck their thumb, yawn, and they said, quote, make super cute faces. I, I'm not quite sure like what, <laughs> what that they means, means but, right. but it can yawn and it can suck its thumb and it can do all of these things that we've seen babies do. That seems pretty sentient to me. <laughs> You're jumping ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So then month five, you can start to feel the baby move. Month six, your baby will start to experience stimuli all around it. So wow. like um sounds if they hear a sound they'll start to like move so some people say like if moms sing to their babies they'll feel their babies kind of like doing a little jig inside the belly that around this adorable. time and then week 26 it, it just it, i don't have to go or you know month by month by month but basically the baby keeps growing and growing and growing and then it pop pops out around <laughs> about or around 40 weeks yeah and and there were some facts here that if your baby is born prematurely after week 27 they have a better chance of survival and there were some things about you know but actually there was a point they said if you had 
a baby born in week 20 to 24 that they'll be kept in the NICU for a better chance of survival, but it's possible they'll survive. You know, that's the premature babies. My cousin was a preemie baby. They used to give him baths in a spaghetti pot. It was so cute. I, my wow. mom still uses the spaghetti pot. <laughs> that's adorable. I know it's super cute. And he slept in a laundry basket. It's so cute, but he was a premature baby. And it was, you know, obviously after he got home from the hospital, he slept in the laundry basket. <laughs> and it wasn't like just like people a, at the hospital just put him in a basket. Here's a laundry basket. Like, hey, we got to put this baby somewhere. <laughs> Okay, so this again is like, when does life begin? Is it alive? Is it a baby? So then I started to look at some, uh, as always, the internet is everything and nothing, aka you can find anything you've ever wanted to find for any point ever on the internet. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure people are going to be like, but Michaela, what about this other 15 things on the internet? I know. I know. I've been doing this. We just can't cover it all. I know. The internet is vast and ridiculous. So I found a quote from Dr. Jerome Lejeune, professor, Lejeune. Lejeune, professor of genetics at the University of Cha. You do, you do French. Yeah. D- Descartes. 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 That's it. Descartes, Paris. Mm-hmm. That's a place. Okay. I've been to one place in Paris. But anyway, so I have he never was been the, to Paris. But Cha speaks a little French. Anyway, so Dr. Jerome was the discoverer of the chromosome pattern of Down syndromes, and he was a Nobel Prize winner. So he had a quote. He said, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. This is no longer, and then there's a little dot, 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 because he said some more things. This is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is only a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Okay. Okay, can you run that back? Dr. Jerome Lejeune says, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. Dot, dot, dot. Right at fertilization. Yeah, conception, as mm-hmm. some people, you know, yeah. fertilization. That's when the, the sperm fertilizes the egg and makes like a zygote or something. What is that? I was reading all about the different, and I was like, man, I have this vague memory of this in like know, middle in school. Biology. Right. I was Oof. like, oh, man, I, I remember passing notes to that cute guy, and they were talking about this. <laughs> I should have listened. Anyway, so, so he said that this being that after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. This is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Well, there you go. Now, that was in 1980. I'm going to be honest. So that was a while back. And that there's a lot more quotes that can, the way science has developed, there have been arguments that it's actually increased the pro-life argument because you're able to see more and know more about the baby early on where we didn't know before. We weren't able to look like ultrasounds. Even women can see their babies like much smaller and much younger and they can right. know if their baby's going to be a boy or a girl and it, well there's 4d ultrasounds now really yes what yes. does that even mean well it smells <laughs> <laughs> no it's more just the imaging um you you can look at your baby in in whole instead of a sort like of, a 3d printed version of your yeah baby. kind of except for it's on the it's on like a monitor you know because normally in an ultrasound it's like a 2d mm-hmm. you know kind of version a of grainy great thing yeah um but now these newer ultrasounds these 4d ultrasounds you can like really see your whole child that is the cutest yeah, it's very cool that's so cute. I just imagine it's a 3D printed version of your kid before they come out. And you're like, oh, this is <laughs> this is my wow, kid. sweet. Okay, so this got me moving forward to the idea that it's not as, it's not refuted as much as I was expecting that a baby is a human being in the womb, that a baby before they're born at different stages even. I know that everyone talks about different stages of life and when can the baby feel pain, 
we'll definitely get into that. But I was looking for the argument everywhere saying that this is not a person, like this is not a human being. And I found there wasn't a lot of people confidently saying that. Not as many as I was hoping. They were just saying like, this is not a human being. But I did find this kind of philosophical debate that's talking about what is a human being versus what is a person. So a human being Hmm. might be more of a scientific thing, like a fact, like it's when a like sperm fertilizes an egg, a human being, and maybe a person is more of a moral argument, which is, again, because a human being is like, okay, once a sperm fertilizes the egg, the new human being is a homo sapien. Like they have their own genetic code. But the, the effect of the cause of that causation is a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sperm, egg, human, human being. being. Okay. I mean, not in all cases, obviously, but sure. when it when sure. it works. When it works. <laughs> <laughs> or it when it doesn't success. work, it just depends on <laughs> what you want to get. But when it works, it creates a, a human and they have their own genetic code and it's unique and they will grow up with their own ge- unique genetic code. Okay. Different than a, a parasite or even a tumor, which I saw that it's unique. Doesn't, a tumor doesn't have its own genetic code. But the real question it seems to be debated is, but does that human being have worth, which would make them a person? So personhood is the more moral debate. So is that human being a person? So it's assigning a value. Yes. So it's about the value of how do we assign value and worth as a person and who gets to assign that value? And when, when does that value get assigned? Because that's where we get the like, okay, fine. Like we heard it in our montage earlier. So that montage earlier was a collection of, it was a TikTok compilation of pro-choice TikToks. One of them was called a TikTok pro-choice TikTok compilation that butter my biscuit. And I watched these at nauseum. I'm not on TikTok. And the more I look at TikTok, the more I understand why. But (laughs) it was was a pro-choice TikTok and people were like putting it forward. And one of the things she was saying, you heard her say was that like, okay, fine, it is a baby, but it's not as important as my bodily autonomy. That's really the bigger argument is that maybe we don't know for sure it's not alive, but we know for sure that woman is alive and we want her to have autonomy, right? So it prioritizes the, her her life, which is known versus maybe the gray area of is the baby a person? And scientifically, again, it seems to be, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. you can look and see like that that is a little person it looks like a little person it acts like a little person right it it has little person needs so then i i found this man that i have to just upfront say i'm not a very big fan of his name is <laughs> peter singer and he's described as the world's most influential influential living philosopher peter singer and he's worked at a lot of big universities and princeton and blah 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 big philosophical dude didn't know anything about him, of course, because I'm not a big philosophical dude myself, but he's apparently a big deal. So he said, if preservation of human life is your standard, you ought to want life protected from conception. Now, that sounds like a pro, pro-life right. kind of guy. He right. says, if preservation of life is your standard, you ought to want life protected from conception. Now, let me go on to say that he is not pro-life. In fact, he's staunchly pro-choice. And so I'm on his website like, wait a minute, like, what do you mean? Like, he's saying like, yeah, if preservation of life's your standard, then of course it's conception. But preservation of life, I guess, is not Peter Singer's standard. So, which it appears that way. So there was a Q or um, what is that like most asked questions? What FAQ, yeah. frequently asked questions on Peter Singer's website. One of the questions was, you have been quoted as saying, quote, killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it's not wrong at all. 
Is that quote? A defective infant? Well, and he said, I did write that in 1979. Today, the term defective infant is considered offensive and I no longer use it, but it was standard usage then. So he said, okay, no. But then he said, um, what I mean by the term person, which is discussed in his book, Practical Ethics, I use the term person to refer to a being who is capable of anticipating the future, of having wants and desires for the future. I think that is generally, and then I'm skipping a bit, I think that is generally a greater wrong to kill such a being than it is to kill a being that has no sense of existing over time. Newborn human babies have no sense of their own existence over time. So killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person. See, that's where person is a moral argument. Wow, that's insane. That is a person, he says, that is a being who wants to go on living. That doesn't mean that it is not almost always a terrible thing to do. It is, but that it is because most infants are loved and cherished by their parents. And to kill an infant is usually to do a great wrong to his or her parents. So it's about the fact that it would hurt the parents. So for Peter Singer, he he defines the morality of being a person. The moral argument doesn't find the morality. He defines being a person as this idea of uh, anticipation of the future. And actually, when I was watching a bunch of videos a lot of people are making that argument like on college campuses. They're like, well, it doesn't like know it's going to be a person. It doesn't have relationships. It doesn't have a sense of time. It doesn't have memories. So it's not a person. So I was like, okay, so this makes me think, okay, if per- if being a person isn't defined by the scientific moment of when the sperm and the egg meet and do their dance, then <laughs> Shaw hated that. <laughs> no, I just thought that was a cute way to say it. And they meet and do, okay, so you liked it. So when they meet, then then it's up to these kind of philosophical questions to decide what is the value of a person. If we're not going to define it on that literal moment that we know is the beginning, then we're just going to make these kind of philosophical moral judgments on the value of a person. And that's how they're, or the value of a human being is what makes them a person. And according to Mr. Singer, Peter Singer, yeah. Um, in, in this, what you've just read, he's actually, he's decided, or he's referring to or alluding to the fact that he's assigning the value yeah he assigned the value yeah peter singer is god i guess (laughs) i mean that's my bias is showing Right. (laughs) right okay but but in general though in this in this argument is that someone is assigning the value right now it's peter singer right right okay he assigns moral value or society is assigning the value of a life. And he goes on to say this, which this is the sliding scale I really worry about because a lot of people associate life or like humanness, personness with cognitive ability. And this freaks me out because obviously anyone who knows me is that I'm a very, very big advocate for people living with disabilities, a huge advocate. I grew up with multiple people in my life, even like a best friend of my mom whose daughter was on a feeding tube, can't um, walk without assistance, is fully reliant on her parents, but has her own life, right? So this, this, this really matters to me because he went on in that same Peter Singer, not my homie, Peter Singer goes on and says, Sometimes, perhaps because the baby has a serious disability, parents think it better that their newborn infant should die. Many doctors accept their wishes to the extent of not giving the baby life-supporting medical treatment, and that will often ensure that the baby dies. My view is different from this, but only to the extent that if a decision is taken by the parents and doctors that it's better that a baby should die, I believe it should be possible to carry out that decision not only by withholding or withdrawing life support, which can lead to the baby dying slowly, but also by taking active steps to end the baby's life swiftly and humanely. Because he says later, although a a newborn baby has no sense of the future and therefore is not a person. There you go. So that's the bottom line. 
Yeah. If, if they have no sense of the future. They're not a person. They are not a person. Different from a human being. And this, I get really fired up about this because it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem, seem right. But I'm going to, I'm going to keep moving because our guest is coming and I'm very excited. So the next big one, which I'm going to try to do very quickly is my body, my choice, women's rights, body Mm, autonomy. You heard it in the TikTok, like body autonomy wins out. So I found an article from the New Republic called The Criminalization of Women's Bodies is About Conservative Male Power. The goal of the wave of anti-abortion laws in America is to put female sexuality under state, strict and brutal state control. So they say these laws in the article, they say these laws are not about whether a fetus is a person. They are about enshrining maximalist control over the sexual autonomy of a woman as a foundational principle of conservative rule. They're about owning women. Women as things. Oh, there's too too much in this. <laughs> they talk about how it's equally monstrous to inflict the same punishment on a woman in her 30s who doesn't want to be a mother just because the condom broke on a Tinder hookup. She, too, deserves bodily autonomy. She should not have to beg for it just because some religi- religious extremist and Viagra-addled Republican lawmakers are frightened of women who... F, I'm not going to say that on the show, obviously, F freely and without remorse. The question of whether a fetus is a person is conveniently unanswerable. The question of whether a woman is a person, however, is not up for debate. And it is female personhood, not fetal personhood, that should decide the issue of basic bodily autonomy. Even if abortion ends a human life, forcing a woman to give birth against her will is worse. Wow. So she doesn't even try to say it's not a person. It's that... She's saying people just want to confiscate basic human rights from people, right? And she said, and I don't know if this is a she or I don't know anything about this person. Actually, the art, the, I keep saying she because that's my go-to. I say everybody's a she. But the writer of this article said there should be no legal restrictions on abortion whatsoever. And this was a good quote. We live in a society that is comfortable letting men get away with sexual violence, but determined to not let a woman get away, not to let women get away with consensual sex. Freedom, female sexual freedom is the basic moral outrage that unites the religious right and libertarians convinced that the state should shrink it small enough to slip into a woman's underwear. Good Lord. So it's not even about at this point as as a child, it's about the fact of women's rights, right? And the idea of my body, my choice. So of course, when you run this down, I was watching a louder with Crowder. He's a funny guy. He's the like person who goes (laughs) like, I'm blank, change my mind. Right. He was talking about this, like, okay, they were saying it's my body. He said, okay, so baby's your body. So when a mother has a baby in her stomach, do they have four hands? And they're like, no. And he's like, okay, well, what if it's a boy? Do Does she have a pee-pee? No. It's like, okay, so is it really her body? And they're like, no, well, it's her body because it couldn't live without her. It's like, well, that doesn't make it her body because there are people living outside of the womb who couldn't live without their parents and maybe could never because of a serious disability. So is it reliance on somebody? Is it sentience? Is it their cognitive ability? Is it their possibility of becoming um, what we consider to be, I guess, members of society that we're deeming have more moral value? Is that what it is? Because, again, the idea of it being about women's rights takes away the idea that is it really about, is it about rights, right? Or is it about life? (laughs) You know, that's what people are calling it, choice now and anti-choice, which... Seems, so it's changed. Yeah. Seems wildly unfair. But so I have a, a bunch more about this, but I know we're running short on time. How short are we running? How are we doing? We, we should go. We, we need to get to our uh, special guest. Our special guest yeah. is coming. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try to do this really quickly then. I'm going to skip this about the Marquis de Sade. We can come back to it. Yeah. Or I'll go live about it this week or something. 
Yeah, but maybe we'll come back to yeah. it. I might talk about it with our guest. Cool. But I just want to go to the last couple arguments here about... So we had body autonomy and women's rights. That's the big one about women need the right to do whatever they want with the things that are in their body. Another big one is government intervention. And people are saying, like, hey, Michaela, like, aren't you like a limited government girl? Like, why would you want the government to tell me what to do with my body? Now, I'm going to try to break this down really quickly. As a conservative person, I consent to government because I believe government, because I want and I expect government to protect my inalienable rights, life, liberty, property. That's the reason I consent to government. I like limited government, but not no government at all because I believe under anarchy, my rights will not be protected. My rights that I believe are given to me by God. So if somebody is infringing on my rights, my inalienable rights, or somebody else's, I expect my government to intervene. For example, slavery. So in a limited government sense, my conservative mind still says that the government needed to intervene to end the sin of slavery even though we consider that government intervention because it was infringing on somebody else's inalienable rights, right? Mm -hmm. right? So in that case, or if like maybe they're like, oh, well, you don't like government intervention. Well, if you are trying to kill me, I'd like the government to stop you. Or if you're trying to kill somebody else. So in that case, I love government intervention. So it's a mischaracterization of conservative values to be like, you don't like intervention at all. That's not true. I like intervention specifically because of the protection of inalienable rights. And, And there's not a bigger topic about inalienable rights or protection of life than this topic right now there's not one this is my very very last one and then we're going to go to our guest this is going to lead into our guest in a really cool way so another one you heard at the top of the show is the separation of church and state so they're saying like um we heard i was listening to a podcast and somebody said quote we're a country based on separation of church and state if you don't want to have an abortion don't have an abortion okay i want to just debunk something really quick we're not a country based on separation of church and state there's more arguments saying we're based on judeo-christian values than the separation of church and state that phrase was most the metaphor was not in our founding document some people might be referencing the establishment clause of the first amendment which said in the, the first clause in the Bill of Rights states that the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, that's been slightly misconstrued, but separation of church and state, right, that was coined by Thomas Jefferson in 1802 in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, where he, mostly the, the theme of the times people were worried that the state would infect the church. Okay, so separation of church and state, to say America is founded on separation of church and state is a whole other episode, but I don't. I don't take that premise. I don't accept that premise. Right. Separately, even even if I did accept that premise, okay, let's say for argument's sake, we are founded on separation of church and state. I still, and we all still impose morality on each other every day. Like I insist that you do not murder or rape or steal anyone, not just me. I insist you do not do that. And I guess that is also in the Bible, right? But we, even people outside of the Bible, we impose these views of morality on each other all of the time. And I care not only what you do to me or what I do to myself, I care what you do to other people. So to say that this is purely about separation of church and state, I also think is a mischaracterization of this because again, it's like saying back in the time of slavery, like, okay, well, you don't have to have slaves, but that doesn't answer the moral call that you have to abolish the sin of slavery because it is wrong for everyone. So again, I just think that's a mischaracterization of this because if I'm actually concerned about abortion taking innocent life, which I'm trying to find the answers to this, but then absolutely I would expect me and I would expect everybody else if my life were threatened or any vulnerable life is threatened, I would expect everyone to impose their morality on somebody and insist that they do not do this. Yeah, they do not take that life. Right. Absolutely. So that's the mischaracterization. Okay. Whew. <sighs> that was pretty good. <laughs> oh my goodness. So tell <laughs> me, tell me a little bit about our special guest. Okay. All right. So we're about to bring on a really interesting man. Um, his name is Father Frank Pavone. Father Frank, 
Frank Pavone is the founder of Priests for Life. So I'm going to, after we take this break, I'll read a little bit more. I'll do his bio. We're going to bring him in. He's going to have some really amazing things to say about the intersection of pro-life, faith, and just how the work he's been doing has been affecting the lives of people in America. So we're super excited. I'm going to get some water, and then we're going to come back. Awesome. All right, everybody, welcome back. As promised, we have a very special guest. We have Father Frank Pavone. Father Frank Pavone is one of the most prominent pro-life leaders in the world. Originally from New York, he was ordained in 1988 by Cardinal John O'Connor, and since 1993 has served full-time in pro-life leadership with his his bishop's permission. He is the National Director of Priests for Life, the largest pro-life ministry in the Catholic Church. He's also the president of the National Pro-Life Religious Council and the National Pastoral Director of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign and of Rachel's Vineyard, the world's largest ministry of healing after abortion. He travels throughout the country to an average of four states every week, preaching and teaching against abortion. He produces programs regularly for religious and secular radio and television networks. He was asked by Mother Teresa to speak in India on the life issues, and he has addressed the pro-life caucus of the United States House of Representatives. The Vatican appointed him to the Pontifical Academy for Life and the Pontifical Council for the Family, which coordinates the pro-life activities of the Catholic Church. He was present at the bedside of Terry Schiavo as she was dying and was an outspoken advocate for her life. Father Frank was invited by members of Congress to preach at the prayer service they had in the Capitol just prior to the vote on health care reform. He received the proudly pro-life award by the National Right to Life Committee and numerous other pro-life awards and honorary doctorates. He's the author of four books, Ending Abortion, Not Just Fighting for It, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, Abolishing Abortion, and Proclaiming the Message of Life. Norma McCorvey, the Jane Roe of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade abortion decision, called Father Frank, quote, the catalyst that brought me into the Catholic Church. Hello, Father Frank. Hi, Michaela. How are you today? So good. We are so excited to have you on the show. So well, It was a great pleasure to meet you at the uh, CPAC convention, the Conservative Political Action Conference here in Orlando. So uh, that was quite an event, and I'm glad we had the chance to connect. Yeah, so like you said, we did meet at the CPAC convention in Orlando, and I was really thrilled by everything he had to say, so we knew we wanted to have him on really early as a guest on our show, and we're going to jump right in. So this, the topic of this episode is when does life begin? So I'm just going to open right there. Father Frank, what is the answer, your answer to when does life begin? It begins at, at fertilization. A unique human life begins at fertilization, which, of course, when we say that, we're not articulating a religious belief or even a philosophical opinion. Uh, we are articulating a fact that is backed up by uh, every textbook on embryology and, uh, and, 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 and every finding of science for, for, for the past a couple of hundred years, we've known quite well uh, how the process of fertilization takes place. Some people will make the argument that, well, you know, it's, it's a matter of religious belief. What's a matter of a religious belief is how much value you want to put on a human life. Um, but as far as asking the question, when did that life begin? That's a matter of established scientific fact. Of course, some will also argue, and this was an argument that slipped its way into Roe v. Wade, 
some will say, uh, well, you know, I mean, you know, the sperm and the ovum, they're alive also, you know, life really never stops and therefore it never, it never really begins because it's, it's, it's been handed down continuously from the beginning. Well, of course, if you're talking about life in a, in a, in a very wide generic sense of the word, but let's talk about your life, my life. When was it determined that we would be a living organism? When was it determined that we would be male or female or the color of our eyes or of our hair or any number of other genetic characteristics? We know exactly how and when that was determined uh, when the genetic material from mom and dad came together in, the, in that process of, uh, of, uh, of fertilization. So this, the question itself is a scientific one. And the answer is, is pretty clear. And have you found that opponents of your work disagree with you on this point? that this is a scientific point you're making? Have people made the argument against that claim? Sometimes they do. Uh, and, and again, you know, I, I say to them, if you can't assert uh, that biologically and genetically a unique human life begins with fertilization, well, then you might as well say that the earth is flat. I mean, because again, it's, it's established scientific fact. Uh, others, however, and, and this is, a, this is a, an important point uh, to understand about the abortion debate, Others do not deny that at all. They'll say, oh, yes, well, of course we know, you know, any biology textbook tells us fertilization. But, but, and then they go ahead to make a value judgment on that life and and basically come up with all kinds of reasons that they think it's okay to destroy that life. Then we are getting into the philosophical, moral, religious um, dimensions of this. Uh, But there are those who will, even including abortionists, who will outright say, oh, yes, I know that this is killing a life, but I think it's justified to do it anyway. We were talking about this before we brought you on to the show, the idea of that if human being is the scientific version, we're asking what makes a person and people are assigning moral value to what makes a person. Because I also found when I was looking at the pro-choice arguments that there wasn't many people saying that it's not a life, it's that the life has no value, exactly like you said. So is that what you find is the most common argument you see against the pro-life movement is that the life is not a value or perhaps that the circumstances surrounding the woman's life have more value or the inconvenience it would add to the woman's life has more value? Yes, it's, it's a very common stance among those who support the legality of abortion. But as common as it is, it's, it's just as dangerous, too, because who are we? Uh, to assign a value to somebody's life. Who are we really? I mean, if we can do that to a life that's in the womb, that is, we become the arbiters from our own, you know, philosophical or moral calculations from our own thinking and arguing about the issue. If we can assign uh, that value to that life that's in the womb, why can we not assign it to a life outside the womb? And that's where, you know, those that, that support abortion don't seem to see that this is a double-edged sword. Uh, The arguments, for example, that they will use, like you said, the concerns of that mother are more weighty than the concerns for any rights that child might have. Well, let's look at, for example, if they say she's too young to be a mother or she's not financially capable or socially or or in any number of other ways capable of raising that baby why should we force her to be a mother Uh, and and on and on whatever way they want to phrase these arguments my question to them always is all right so if a lack of social or economic 
um, uh, means to raise the child, justifies killing the child in the womb. What if you have a newborn? Uh, what if you have a one-year-old? Can't you then make the same argument? Circumstances change in the first year of that child's life. And now this mother no longer wants to be a mother, no longer feels able to be a mother. Maybe the husband has, you know, be betrayed her and left the scene. So, okay, so let's kill the newborn. After all, we don't want to force her to be a mother. I mean, it does not, don't her concerns outweigh the concerns of the child? If the arguments that are used to justify abortion actually are valid, they prove too much. They prove too much because then they justify killing the, 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 the born uh, as, as well. You know, Peter Singer was an ethicist uh, who um, is an ethicist uh, who is very much in favor of uh, abortion and even infanticide. We just talked you know, about him on the show. Did you? Did you? Yes, we well, were just know, talking about him. I don't like him very much, Father. He, uh, no, no, no. He's bad news. But one of his favorite, one of his most famous quotes is, um, he says, there are only two consistent positions, either oppose abortion or endorse infanticide. And the reason he said that was exactly the, the explanation I just gave, because by the, the, the actual event of birth cannot possibly contain the moral significance or weight that would make the difference between a person and a non-person. It, it, it just can't. Um, now, I've talked to a lot of abortionists in the course of my work. I, I speak with ex-abortionists and also with practicing abortionists. And, you know, it's funny now because we're talking when you can have different philosophy, different morality. When does this life have a value? And, and it's, it's amazing how these, uh, these abortionists, they'll often just use the law. You know, I'll say to an abortionist, well, you know, how up to how far do you do abortions? Oh, oh, I, you know, I was talking to one of them and said, oh, well, up to 24 weeks. They said, okay, so how about 24 weeks in one day? Oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I said, well, then what's the biological uh, uh, change that occurs at midnight, you know, between the uh, end of the uh, 24th week and the beginning of the 25th that all of a sudden makes this a person? I've asked various abortionists that question, and you know what their answer is? Oh, it's the law. It's like, well, okay, so the law can be changed. So what if the law changes and, and you know, now it's 30 weeks or 35 weeks or, or full term? Um, I mean, it, does, it doesn't make any sense to use that as the answer to, you know, the value of a life right. uh, or, the, or, the, or the identity of the, as a person. What I find to be really concerning about these um, conversations that surround abortion is that I'm looking, I'm like, okay, who now is deciding what gives life value and who has right. the authority to decide that. So I'm a very right. religious person as well. I'm not Catholic, but I believe in God, and it scares me when people behave as God um, right. and assign moral value, because if anyone other than God is assigning the value, I'm a, why won't they just assign the value on my life at any moment? That's right. What, 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 what limits it to the unborn? I mean, it's, it's, it's you and you, if you can do it, you can do it to anybody. And that's, of course, what happened with um, uh, you mentioned in my, you know, my introduction, I was very much involved in the Terry Schiavo case. We just had the anniversary on March 31st of, of her death. And for those that don't know, she was a brain injured woman. She was healthy. She was injured, but she was healthy. She wasn't dying of any you know, terminal disease or anything like that. She ended up getting killed by court order because her husband made the appeal to the court that her life was not worth living. And so there was a value judgment on her life and she was literally 
starved and dehydrated to death. So, I mean, are we in the position to be making those kind of value judgments? Right, and playing God. I wanted to talk about the Terry Schiavo case because I've lived in Florida my whole life. I remember that case when I was young. It was really impactful. Um, my, My mom describes it as one of the most impactful events of her life. So like you said, we were, we watched the case. So when I read that you were at Terry Schiavo's bedside, that was really moving to me. I want to know what was your motivation to fight to keep her alive and how is that connected? I think it's obviously very connected to the pro-life work you do, but what was it when, I mean, I know there was just endless uh, fights, fighting, endless battling to try to keep her alive. What was motivating you through all of that? Well, the family reached out to me. Uh, they had they knew that I was a national pro-life leader uh, and that I was speaking up for the unborn and also speaking up for the vulnerable at other stages of life. So they reached out to me for help several years prior to uh, Terry's death. We publicized the matter. We encouraged the family, et cetera. And the motivation for me was the same motivation by which I fight abortion, that there are people who cannot speak for themselves and the value of their lives is completely being negated. And once we go down that road, there is no, there's no, there's no turning back from that. That everyone is in danger. Unless we're all protected, we are all in danger. Because you can't. But the, the sanctity of life is a principle which, if you break it at any point of the spectrum, you've broken the whole thing. So it just so happens that the courts have targeted the unborn and said that they are not persons. Uh, But if we begin to say, for example, well, those who cannot talk are not persons or those who, you know, lose a certain amount of functionality are not persons, whatever boundary line or definition we, uh, uh, we, we, we draw, then, I mean, you have people who are, you know, incapable of, um, of speaking for themselves, and, uh, and somebody's got to speak up for them. So the motivation is, you know, to help help the helpless. But you, you once you break that principle, once you take away protection from any group, uh, then and then you've you've broken the principle that protects every group. Yeah, that's what I find to be most shocking when I go and I look back at some of the the early peaks of what is now the abortion movement. I was studying a man named the Marquis de Sade. Um, and he, the Marquis de Sade, took what I believe to be, you know, true atheism to the farthest point, saying there is no God, there's only nature, and thus, because there is no God, there's no, like, moral good, basically. So if you have the power to kill somebody, and you want to, and it benefits you, you should be able to do that. If you can physically overpower somebody, it's very, like, Darwin, almost, that, like, that's the natural cycle of things, you should be able to do that. And when I was reading, you know, the Marquis de Sade was a horrific figure. Um, He was a French, painted as a French revolutionary, but he was like, he would write horrible pornographic books, and he was very violent, and he was torturing people. But he became kind of, um, he coined a lot of the argument that we use now for abortion, which is the idea of we want women's sexual freedom. And if, again, if a woman is able to overpower, essentially, a a child shouldn't she be able to because that would be natural and since there is no god nature doesn't care because nature the nature of nature is destruction so i i i wanted the terry shivo case i thought was so pivotal in that because like you said who speaks up for the most vulnerable as the sliding scale of what is value on a person changes that was ultimately what the terry shivo case was about is who has value and then who decides that so in your opinion who does decide the value of human beings 
Well, it's decided uh, by God, the, 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 the creator. In fact, even our, even our foundational political document, the Declaration of Independence, asserts that. It says, look, our rights aren't coming from, from government. They're certainly not coming from any individual in our lives. Uh, this country was founded on, on, on the principle that something like the right to life itself is established by God himself. And that, that's what makes us free. In other words, if no person has even the authority to decide that or to change it, if no government has the authority, then we are truly free because, because nobody can impose that on us. The acknowledgement of God um, as, a, as a true being and a giver of, of our rights is the foundation then for everybody looking at everybody else and says, you know what, we're all in the same boat. We're all under the same authority. It's him, not any of us. But as soon as one takes away the authority of God by, you know, for example, denying his existence, well, then there's a vacuum. It's like, okay, well, then who does have the authority? Well, then it's up for grabs, and it's an endless argument, an endless battle, an endless uh, civil war among humanity, then there's no solution to it. Uh, so there, there's no, there's no, John Paul II wrote very well about this uh, in a document called the gospel of life and Pope John Paul, for him, this was one of the key themes, you know, of his, um, of his time as, as Pope and his teachings on this have appealed to people of all different religious backgrounds. And he said, you know, uh, 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 he said a state that allows abortion, uh, a state that says the court is going to decide whether you have the right to life or what your value is. He says what happens there, he says he calls it the death of true freedom. It's the death of true freedom because now you're not free from anybody who might, as you were describing, have more power uh, than, than you and can simply overpower you. You have no more freedom in that case. And then he says it's a, it's a tragic caricature of democracy uh, because it looks like it, it, a law or a court decision of permitting abortion or permitting the killing of Terry Schiavo. It looks like it went through all the proper channels and whatnot. He says, but it's a caricature because it's not really democracy in action because it, it's undermined to the very purpose of law and government, which is that there be some um, uh, equality, some basis on which everyone can say, I'm safe here. I'm protected. I'm equal. And uh, again, it goes back to what we were saying before. You break that principle at any point and you've broken it for everyone. So is the answer then, for me, I see, I see God in this everywhere, right? So I heard a lot of people talking about one of the arguments, a pro-abortion argument is a separation of church and state is what they said, which of course, earlier on the show, we were talking about that our nation was actually founded on these Judeo-Christian principles. And that, like you said, gave us our freedom. So is the answer to some of this the return to God? And if so, what role do people of faith have in the pro-life movement? Because I know I was listening in my preparation. I did a lot of what I call to be, you know, opposition research because I'm very pro-life. Um, I was listening to Catholics for Choice, for example, and there are lots of, there's division among the faith world. There's division among the world of Catholicism that you're very involved in. What is the answer and what is the work you do with people of faith to get involved in this? How do you encourage them? Yes, you know, we can come to the conclusion by human reason alone, and that's actually what we have been doing in some of this conversation, 
that it's wrong to kill a baby and, uh, and, and human reason and also just human instinct, self-preservation, preservation of the species. It's wrong to kill babies. Uh, but, but, but reason is also darkened and weakened uh, by sin. And uh, obviously, lots of people and influential people come to the wrong conclusion on these most fundamental uh, matters. That's where faith comes in. It strengthens and it enlightens. It lifts up. It heals. It restores uh, reason to its its proper role, and it, and it gives us additional uh, light and understanding and motivation by what God has revealed. God reveals truth to us in two ways: through our through our human reason, uh, aided by our our senses, of course, and this is where science uh, develops, and uh, and then revelation, things that God tells us about himself that we could never uh, figure out by human reason or logic. And even that when we, if we do hear them, it's sort of like we, we know full well that we can never fully understand some of these mysteries. They transcend the power of the, of the, uh, of the human mind. So what we do is we, people of faith, I mean, people, the faith motivates an awful lot of people, most people, in America, the faith faith motivates them. The Bible motivates them and shapes their lives. They have a relationship with God and and with Christ. So to speak to people of faith in the language of faith, uh, it, it really clarifies and motivates their action to make a better world. Uh, whether it's fighting abortion, fighting poverty, fighting any kind of injustice, uh, faith plays such a key role. You look at the movement to abolish slavery and then the civil rights movement as well. And so many movements for justice and peace are motivated by uh, the faith that the people have in the in, in confronting those injustices. So the faith has done a tremendous service to the world. And this is what we do. We, we, we say that our ministry is activating and equipping God's people to end abortion. Uh, we teach what the scriptures say about protecting life, what the uh, scriptures and also other uh, documents and teaching uh, of the church down through the centuries has said about this. We educate people in this. We help the clergy and hence our name, Priests for Life, although our work is far beyond just, just the clergy but and far beyond just Catholics. But the, but the motivation and education of the clergy is so important because if you can get the clergy fired up about this and informed and speaking, they have a big role to play, not only in teaching the truth, but also in counseling. And that's a big part of our work as well, counseling those, first of all, who feel that they have to have an abortion. They don't want to, but they, they, you know, and this is the irony of the slogan, freedom of choice. People don't get abortions because of freedom of choice. They get them because they feel they have no freedom and no choice. So the church and the pastors need to know, people of faith need to know, how do I speak to those people? Well, I speak to them, not with judgment or condemnation or negativity. I'm not pointing fingers at them. I'm extending my hand to help them. And that's the stance of the church, and that's the stance of our work. Help those that feel that they have no choice. Show them they do have a choice. Show them that they can say yes to life. And then secondly, that big group of people who have already had abortions. We who reject abortion do not reject those who have abortions. That's so important for people to understand. Uh, and we a big part of our ministry. We run the largest ministry in the world for healing the wounds of abortion. And we reach out to these people every day and we say, you know, you, you have reason 
to if you feel terrible about what you did, that's with good reason because what you did was terrible. But that doesn't mean it's the end of your life or the end of your hope. And we bring them to the peace and forgiveness that come from God and from and from Christ. Uh, those are some of the things that we do then with the, the people of faith when it comes to this issue. Amen. And like you said, I, mean, I believe it says this, that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, right? So I love what you yes. said, that this is not about um, person versus person. It's really principles and ideologies that we're trying to inspire and encourage. And also, and potentially in your work, you're trying to defeat um, maybe an ideology yes. that is leading to the death of our most vulnerable, one of our most vulnerable populations, which is the, you know, the babies that can't defend themselves. So right. I've heard, um, like I said, lots of people are in the opposition research I was doing are saying, okay, well, keep your religion out of my face. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, like that's fine. You believe that, but don't impose your religion on me. So what is your message to those people that are out? Maybe they don't have any interest in faith, any interest in God, maybe are even in direct opposition to both of those things. Maybe they have past history or trauma with church or with people of faith and they reject it wholeheartedly. Do you have a message for them as well? I believe you answered this a yes. bit. Yes. Well, we totally we totally agree with them. We we don't we don't see faith as something that should be imposed. God gives us our freedom. It's a gift of His, and if He uh, it leads a believer to faith, it's not by 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 force. It's by invitation. Um, now, having said that. When what we're asking for when it comes to when we advocate for pro-life laws and, and when it comes to protecting the unborn by law, many people see it as an imposition of religious faith because they don't understand exactly what we're what we're what we're asking of the, the law to do. The law does not require us to believe anything. The law requires us to protect people despite our beliefs. So, for example, if someone comes along and says, uh, or they think in their mind or they sincerely believe that you or I are not human persons or that you and I don't have a soul or that we don't have the right to life. Listen, <laughs> they can believe what they want. I, I don't expect the law to require them to subscribe to any kind of philosophical or religious beliefs. They can believe what they want. They want to believe I'm a, a you know, a, 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 a person without a soul or not even a person. Okay. That's, a, that's up to them to believe. But if they try to hurt me or kill me, the law says some, the law has something to say. So the law is protecting me not by imposing a belief on that person. The law is protecting me despite their belief. And that's all we're saying about the unborn. Say, Look, they deserve to be protected precisely because there's no other way to distinguish them from us. Every a biological indication that I am human they can also claim it's there too. It's the, the, the genetics are there and, and they're clear. So we give them the same protection and it doesn't matter what people believe. We don't, we're not imposing a belief uh, and we're just protecting people despite their beliefs. So as we've been, I've spent a lot of time preparing for this episode, delving into this topic. And I have to say it really bums me out. Um, what is your inspiration in this? What have been the moments that you have seen the fruit of your labors and they have been beautiful because it is easy to get caught in the weeds of what feels like this inconquerable uh, just sin essentially and I it feels very weighty on me and I'm wondering 
What is the thing that pulls you forward, lifts you up? What are those moments that have been inspirational and might be inspirational to our listeners? Well, uh, one of them, of course, uh, is is the actual saving of life. I mean, when we, whether it's out in front of, by, by praying out in front of these abortion facilities, we see people turning around or, or, uh, or through our website, we've had people look at our website, look at the pictures of aborted babies and say, oh my goodness, I could never do that uh, to my baby. I was, I had an abortion scheduled. And when I saw those pictures, I canceled uh, my abortion. I mean, we get all kinds of messages like this or people who heard, uh, you know, a sermon uh, that I may have given online or in a church. These moments when you know that you have saved a life and that life comes back to you. <laughs> I mean, I've had people that, you know, thanks to my work, they, they change their minds about abortion. And then those children that were saved uh, have come to meet me and, um, will, will, you know, or, or parents will name their children, you know, after a, a pro-life activist who helped to save them. And, and those moments are awesome. Then, of course, related to that are the moments when, when people say, thank you for enlightening me about this. Many, many people will, will, will say this at various times that, okay, you've helped me to change from being pro-abortion to pro-life. I remember uh, uh, in my early uh, preaching on this and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, this is my full-time focus, as you mentioned in my, in my intro. And so I get to, this is, and this is not the normal pattern for priests, you know, we deal with many different issues, but I get to focus just on this one and I, in my preaching too. So for like almost 30 years now, you know, I've preached, uh, preached <laughs> practically exclusively on abortion. And I see the reaction of people all around the country, around the world. And at the beginning of this journey, I, uh, I started using the example of the sea turtles, uh, here in Florida, the, um, you know, the sea turtles are protected. Their eggs are protected by local, state and federal law. And uh, the baby in the womb is not. And so I, I, I brought up in um, this uh, homily and brought up in many homilies. Well, if, if we don't have the right to choose to smash the egg of a sea turtle, why do we have the right to choose to smash a baby? So a woman comes up to me after the service and she said, uh, I came into this church today 100 percent pro-abortion. And now I've had a 180 degree turn. I am pro-life. And she said, it was the turtles. Now, that, <laughs> right? I mean, it's so simple. It's such yeah. a simple thing. It wasn't some kind of complex argument or anything. It was just the turtles. You know, people are, it's easier to change people's minds than we think. And, um, uh, and we see this happening even with people of great, power and influence like Senator Zell Miller, for example, was a was a Democrat senator for some years from from Georgia. And he wrote in his autobiography, he said, you know, I changed my position on abortion. I became pro-life. And then he said one of the reasons. Well, first of all, he said one of the reasons was and this is the reason for a lot of people in his own family, his grandchildren, seeing his grandchildren. Uh, as unborn children and then being born, the wonder of life comes through to so many people when they have those specific, especially family or might be a friend, experiences of the, the birth of a child. So that's one thing. But he said also, and this was in reference to our work, because we have the Silent No More campaign. So those that have actually had abortions, speaking out about it, 
telling their stories, telling them, telling the public about the grief that abortion brought to them. And Senator Miller said uh, in his book, he said, you know, one of the most moving sights for me at the uh, pro-life march in Washington was the large number of women who said they regret their abortions. And that made him, uh, you know, rethink the issue and say, hey, maybe abortion is not such a good thing after all. So you get these moments of encouragement just by the seeing the fruits of your work. But aside from that, you know, thinking about this historically, I mean, we are on the right side of morality, of justice, of America, of history. We are on the right side of history. And people who have fought in other movements, you know, I mean, it took longer to reverse uh, this, um, segregation in the courts than it, ha than it has taken so far to, to reverse abortion. You look historically at, at the, the, you know, it takes a long time to uproot injustice and to free a society from these errors, but it can be done. And the, and the, the, the heroes and heroines of past movements for justice, like anti-slavery, like, like the civil rights movement, are a, a constant source of strength for us and inspiration because we realize it doesn't matter how many forces are lodged against us or how much progress the other side makes. What matters is that we keep moving forward. Because we know we're going in the right direction. We know we can take a step every day. And as long as we don't stop, uh, we know that, that, that we are uh, on the path of victory. So, Father, I want to I want to paint a picture for you. So, I have been watching. Do you know what TikTok is? Yes, okay. I, I have a TikTok account. As a matter of fact, no, you don't. Okay, I don't even have a TikTok account. But our producers are so excited that you do. We're gonna follow. That's you. That's awesome, Father. I'll definitely follow you. Follow you. <laughs> it's fr. It's 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 fr. Frank Pavone is the is the, uh, the awesome. All of our I, listeners out there. I'm gonna tell you the truth. Just about an hour before I came on the show with you today, I, I taped a couple of TikTok uh, of videos. I <laughs> oh, so love that so much. <laughs> so, so I've been spending. So you're probably so you're familiar with the landscape of TikTok. I'm actually less familiar, but our producer Cha Cha, she's quite familiar, and she always teaches me a bit. But I was on the the pro choice TikTok. And we, at the uh -huh. top of our show, played, played some compilations from this. And I want to paint a picture to you. I'm watching a lot of our, I have a very specific heart for reaching women. Of course, anyone that is touched by our work, I'm pleased. But I have a very specific heart for women. And I'm watching a lot of young women on TikTok who are quite sure about if that, they're repeating the stances that we've talked about that, my bodily autonomy is more important and has more value than a life that may or may not be a life, may or may not be a person. And I'm seeing now with the Shout Your Abortion campaigns, and there are young girls in Planned Parenthood clinics who are making TikToks and dancing and who are angry, who are yelling, saying like, you heard surely keep your rosary off my ovaries. There are these these women, right, who I'm, I'm, I'm really very sad about when I am being totally transparent and I'm, I hope to reach, and I'm sure you've been reaching many, many women like this, especially young women. So if advice to me, if I were speaking to these women, or if you were speaking directly to, to these kinds of women who I said are very sure, uh, ir to almost irrefutably, if you could make one irrefutable pro-life argument for these women, what would it be? Well, I would talk to them. Uh, well, I would want to ask them, first of all, I deal with this with questions, you know, to tell me what is, like you asked me about what is motivating me. Well, ask them, 
you know, tell me more about your position. You know, I had one time on um, um, uh, a pro-life chain, a pro-life chain in Manhattan. Uh, we had, um, we were standing there with pro-life signs in New York City. And there were these three young women sitting on the curb with signs that said pro-choice. So I, you know, I see people like this. I go over to them and I engage them respectfully, and I ask them questions because that shows a respect for them. And I asked them. I said, "Tell me, what, what does your sign mean?" You know, and they kind of laughed. They said, "Oh, well, you know what it means." I said, "Well, yeah, I know what it means in one sense, but tell me, tell me what it means to you. Pro-choice until when? What's your what's the cutoff point?" And and you know, you you, it, it's easy for somebody to say. I don't want to listen to you. You know, these people you described that are making these videos and they're so sure of themselves, they don't want to listen to us. They don't want to listen. To but it's hard for people to say, I don't want you to listen to me. So when I approach them, I'll say, okay, tell me more about what you think and what you're feeling and why you're saying what you're saying. Why are you dancing around? Why are you celebrating abortion? Tell me what it is there to celebrate. Because some of these people are it's no deeper than the slogan. And so these these three girls that were sitting on the street there in New York City, not one of the three of them could tell me what their limit was to pro-choice. It was just three months, six months, nine months, when? None of the three of them had defined for themselves where the boundary is of what they were there. They were there publicly proclaiming their position but they couldn't say what it was. So I, I, I think that, and then, and, and I wasn't, I didn't make fun of them or argue with them. Or I just said, well, I sincerely want to know. A lot of these people are in um, various levels of pain and denial, uh, or they, they simply have latched onto what they think is a, a good movement or a good slogan. And uh, others have, you know, they delve into it quite a bit. And, and you know, some of them are, are taking a more intellectual approach than, than others. But in every case, if we can simply show them uh, a respectful uh, stance and say, you know, we're not against you, even if you vehemently disagree, we're not against you. We're against killing, but we're not against you. And, and show them that we're interested in listening to them. That can cut through a lot of that um, stuff they're dealing with, you know, and stuff that they're articulating. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and what we will realize with them, as well as with the people who run these abortion facilities and are in the abortion industry, we will find that they are not quite so confident as they want people to think they are. People are very ambivalent about abortion, very, uh, even the most adamant proponents of it. Uh, and um, and, and uh, talking with people like us, you know, can help them to identify with, uh, help them to, 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 to see more clearly that ambivalence within themselves. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. I think that finding the most of this show, we talk about the compassionate argument, right? So finding the most compassionate and human way to interact with people to change their ideas that we're coming to discuss ideas, not to condemn individuals. And I really appreciate right. that about your stance. I think that's very powerful. And it cuts against a common narrative about people who are pro-life, which I appreciate, because most people I know who are pro-life are are taking that stance because they are not against anybody. They're truly right. trying to stand up for what is 
consider up again what I keep saying might be the most vulnerable population in our community so I just want to have one more question because I imagine people listening are getting excited because I get excited listening to you and they might want to get involved so if they want to get involved in what you are doing is there a pathway for people just our listeners who might want to either donate or find out more or maybe volunteer what can they do Yes. Well, let me give uh, give you, first of all, my overall website. It's endabortion.us. And endabortion.us is going to then give you all those things you just mentioned, things they can do, things they can learn, things they can pass on to their friends or to their churches, alternatives to abortion, healing after abortion, uh, opportunity to, to donate, different projects that we're doing, pro-life news and commentary, uh, our broadcasts, and our social media. Uh, we have the links to some of our main accounts. Uh, well, we've got we've got a whole range of accounts on many different different platforms. So endabortion.us is the portal to all of that. And there's a place in this movement for everyone, no matter how young or how old, no matter if they are you know, a, a religious believer of any particular faith or of no particular faith. I have friends I work with in this movement, even other leaders, colleagues who are atheists, and and yet they know that it's it's not right to kill a baby. So it's um, a very very diverse movement, and we're here to serve the full diversity of that movement. So people can connect with us in numerous ways there at endabortion.us, and you know, be fun to connect on on all the different social media. And we broadcast every single day uh, live on a multiplicity of platforms. And, and that's an opportunity too, that we have these dialogues. We talk with people, answer their questions, uh, uh, bring them the help they might need. People are, you know, come on these programs and, oh, I had an abortion. I feel so bad about it. What do I do next? And, and they'll find the healing resources there at our, um, at our ministry website as well. All the different help they could give a friend who's been, you know, suffering from an abortion uh, and so forth. So thank you for uh, asking that, that important question. Thank you. Well, it matters to me too, because I'm, I'm so excited about this and I'm very inspired listening to you. I have one final request of you. Would you be willing to, for our final move here, would you be willing to pray us, pray us out? Absolutely. Let us pray. Well, Father, we thank you. You are the Lord of life. You have given us being, even though we never asked for it or earned it, uh, out of your pure love, your pure choice, which always comes before our choices, you have brought us into being. And Lord, you have chosen uh, all our brothers and sisters for us in the human family. Uh, they came about not because of our choice, but because of yours. And so, Lord, we ask you that we might live in this love that the love we have for others might give them life, might protect their lives, might change despair into hope. Father, we ask you to just send your spirit now upon all those who are in such despair that they are even tempted to destroy their own child. Lord, change that despair to hope and let them have the strength to say yes to life. Lord, send your spirit now upon all those uh, who are in despair because they, they did kill their child. Lord, turn that despair into hope as they learn of your mercy and of our welcome to them and our compassion on them. And Father, awaken the consciences of all our, our brothers and sisters across this nation and around this world that, that, that they help them to understand, Lord, that this is their business. That, that the abortion of a child is not just someone else's problem, someone else's child, someone else's choice, but that it's our child that, because you have entrusted us to the care of one another. We are all 
responsible to help one another. Awaken your people, Lord, that they may understand that this is the business of love. It's not interfering with someone else's life. It is the business of love when we reach out to another person in danger or in need and we try to help them and we try to save them. So bless this movement that we call the pro-life movement. Bless all your people. Help each person listening now to understand the unique role that you give them in this movement and to realize that there are some minds only they can change, some lives only they can save, some abortions only they can stop. Let each person rise up to carry out that role that you have planned for each of us, Lord, and help us experience your love, your peace, and your joy. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, and we are out. (laughs) Thank you again. We're going to go ahead. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be right back. Welcome back, everybody. That was a beautiful time with Father Pavone, and we are so grateful to him and to Priest for Life for sharing that time with us. So this has been a huge topic, and I'm sure we'll have to circle back a million times. I probably have 20 pages I didn't get to this time, but that's okay. Um, Thank you for spending this time with us. I just want to wrap it up, as always, and tell you what is my point to all of this, to this huge, gigantic topic. What is it that I really think? So I want to start with some questions. What should the abortion argument really be about? If life doesn't begin at conception, where else could it begin that doesn't lead to ever-changing sliding scales? In the hostile debate surrounding abortion, Does it matter to you to know for sure where life begins? Because it matters to me. Because if I don't know, how could I protect it? What is the danger of humans playing God and assigning value to life based on things like brain function, memories, relationships to other people, or even our own personal convenience? Because where does our value come from? Do the strong define the value of the vulnerable? Or do the traditionally cognitive assign value for those who may not be? But where does that lead? For me, God is all over this argument. I couldn't remove God from it even if I tried. Because if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, does it really make a sound? I think so. I think God hears it. And if a child with limited cognitive function or no family or no memories dies, I believe God hears that too. Thank you everyone for listening. And remember, treat everyone with kindness and never trade what looks right for what is right. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us today. 
Um, just want to hop on here and let you know where you can follow us and follow along. You know, we do go live uh, every Tuesday. You can also follow Michaela and keep up with her. You know, she um, has on her social media, she goes live a couple times a week and you can follow her posts on there. You can find her um, on every platform at Michaela Getz, Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can follow us at Something Burger Podcast and on Twitter at S Burger Podcast. Um, also, new this week, we are finally on uh, Spotify and Google Podcasts, so you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we look forward to having you next week.